it up to James chapter 1. Uh, last week we, we listened as James called us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And we learned that these trials produce steadfastness in our life which lead us to a place of, of wholeness and completeness. That's where James is leading us. And, and, and you know it'd be easy for you to view today's passage uh, as though James has just drank like four coffees and is doing that thing where you're just jumping from subject to sub- subject as you gust, right? Let me tell you about the you know, trials and steadfastness. Let me tell you about wisdom. Let me tell you about the wealthy and poverty as if he's just kind of jumping from thing to thing. Uh, that's not what's happening here. It, it's an actually organized thought. Uh, they're all connected. You see, James knows that when we find ourselves uh, facing trials of various kinds in our life, that we often find our, our ourselves facing doubt or confusing, may, confusion, maybe even wondering, right, if, if, if I had more wealth, maybe that would fix these problems. And he, he knows, right, that in the midst of our trials, you might struggle to believe that God is good, right, because your circumstances don't, aren't good. And, and what you and I need when we're facing trials more, more than anything is, is wisdom. We need wisdom if we're going to really counted all joy when we face trials of various kinds. If we're going to think rightly about the trials that God has, has put us in, taking us through. Uh, and so as you're going to see here in, in just a moment, Jesus instructs us to cry out to, to God for wisdom. Now, in order to keep it all in, in order today, right, to put it, we're going to begin reading in verse 2, but we're actually going to start unpacking things starting in verse 5 this morning. But if you will, Follow along, starting in verse 2 of James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises in its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, once again, we ask that you would enlighten our minds for understanding this, your life-giving word. Draw us into this passage that we've just read. That teach us this morning to seek wisdom from your generous hand. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So wisdom is a a word, right, that was once used quite commonly. It's it's fallen out of favor in our current culture. Not that you never hear it, but uh, it's it's not a common word we use anymore. We we, we hear quite often, actually, right, that that someone being praised, right, because he's so smart or he's brilliant, right, or uh, right in Amy's family, they're wicked brilliant because they're from the Boston area. But uh, but how often do you actually hear someone told, you know what, that was really wise of you? So let me ask, I mean, do you, do you have a good understanding of what the word wisdom even means? Now, it's a, it's a common enough 
Greek word. It's one of those ones we generally know, even if you don't speak Greek, you probably recognize it, if, if for no other reason, because it's often given as a girl's name, Sophia. Uh, or, or maybe you recognize it as the second part of the word philosophy, right? That was my major in college. It means the love of wisdom. That's what philosophy means. Ironically, I didn't win or learn much wisdom, right? Especially biblical wisdom, studying philosophy in college. Now, to have wisdom certainly requires knowledge, but, but wisdom is not related to your IQ. Having a higher IQ doesn't mean you have higher wisdom or vice versa. Uh, having a, a PhD doesn't necessarily make you wise. Uh, there are brilliant people who are still quite unwise, and the opposite is also true. Now, I, I tend to think of the subject of physics as, as math applied to the real world. You're, you know, you're answering questions such as, you know, how much weight can this bridge actually hold? Uh, in a similar way, wisdom is, is knowledge. It, it, is, it, it, it is truth applied to real life. As John Morrison phrased so interestingly, he said, knowledge comes by taking things apart. Wisdom comes by putting things together. You see, it's, it's one thing to know truth, right, that God is real. It's one thing to know that it's, it's quite another thing to know what to do with that truth, right? What, what is the best way for us to think to, to live, to, to respond to trials, to suffering, because God is real, because God loves you, because of so many other things that we know to be true from God's word is revelation, right? That's why Proverbs 9.10 states so emphatically that uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This foundational knowledge uh, needed for wisdom is for you to know, one, right, that God is you didn't know that God is powerful and sovereign, that, that God is so wonderful and holy and, and worthy of your, your awe, worthy of, of your worship, worthy of your, your obedience, your respect. And, and last week we, we saw James give us some, some knowledge which was intended to be why, you know, applied wisely, namely that, that the various trials that we, we face as Christians, that they actually have a purpose in our life. These are not just random things. It's not just the roll of a dice. It means nothing. They're, they're not intended to crush you. They are intended to, to bring you and me into this, this place of wholeness, this understanding of, of who we are in Christ. Now let's consider another question. Why in the world do we need wisdom? You know, the simple answer to that is because we don't have it. Right? Or, or maybe you don't have it. James does say, right, if, if any of you lacks wisdom, right, there's that qualifier. What about you? Uh, what about whatever frustration or struggle or trial you're, you're facing right now? Do you find yourself lacking wisdom for, for how to respond, for, for how to be patient, for how in the world you can trust that God means this for your, your good, right? That God is even good in the midst of it. G gaining wisdom you see, it's a humbling activity because it requires that you, you acknowledge that you lack something, right? that you lack wisdom. And we don't like to admit that. Christian, it is okay to need guidance. It's okay to not already have the answer to everything. It's okay if you don't have wisdom to admit you don't have wisdom. You, you are not the Christ. James tells us in, in verse 5 how we are to obtain wisdom. It's shockingly simple. Um, it's the same way you get Chick-fil-A sauce at the restaurant when you don't have it, right? You ask for it. J James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. He's talking about prayer here. 
Uh, Brett McCracken in his book, The, The Wisdom Pyramid, says this. This, however, is the struggle. Asking requires humility. And we want to believe that we can be wise without God. He goes on to say, every prayer is a rebuttal to the look within logic of our age. To pray is to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers in ourselves. We don't have sufficient wisdom to make complex decisions. We must humbly turn to God, the giver of wisdom, seeking his guidance in all things. We are utterly reliant upon him. Now the rest of verse 5 actually gives us uh, four important things about God and how it relates to giving, right? Uh, first in James 1, right, that literally in the Greek here, it says, let him, uh, let him ask the giving God, right? That's all put together, the giving God. It's labeling God that, that way. He, he gives us so much. He, he gives you all the days of your life. He, he gives you forgiveness and, and salvation and, and Christ. He, he gives his word, which is full of truth and wisdom for life. He, our God is a giving God. That's who he is. And second, we learn here that God will give generously. Someone once, once made this comparison, and it's always stuck with me, I love it. He said that God is like a, a tomato gardener in August who is just handing out tomatoes to anybody who desires them. You've probably run into that person in your neighborhood at some point. That's what God's like. And the third thing that we learn in, in verse 5 is that God gives to all, to old folks, to young folks, to rich folks, to poor folks, to men and, and women and children, to those with PhDs, with, to those who you know, barely graduated third grade, right? Our, our God does not play favorites. He is, he is generous to all his children. And finally, we learn that God gives without reproach. Do you know what reproach means? I mean, I, for real, do you really, right? Because I feel like this is in that category of those words we kind of know how to use, but we don't know exactly. Like if I had to, you know, you give me $100 if you don't define this well, you think you could define it. Or, or you like most people, right? You just kind of read over it and not really sure. That, that's what I did for 20 years when it came to this word here. Uh, reproach means to express disapproval or disappointment. Well, every so often, our car needs some sort of work on it, and it's little, something needs switched out, right? I go to AutoZone, and I walk in, and I tell them, you know what? Uh, I need an air filter for that car, and, uh, and they start to ask me questions. I'm like, I think it's a 2005. It's definitely a Toyota. You know, all these things I don't know. And, and you just kind of give me this look like, man, you are 40 years old. You don't know what all these details of your car. You don't even know where the air filter is there. And there's that reproach that comes with this, this asking for, for help kind of thing. Or, or, or maybe, right, when you're in your 20s or your experiences later, your college students, right, when you call your mom and you say, hey, mom, uh, how do you make scrambled eggs? And, and she's probably going to give you an answer that is dripping with reproach, right? Lucas, surely you know how to make scrambled eggs. And then comes the help. Right? That, that's reproach when it's just this, this attitude of, I can't believe you need help with this. You, you know when, when someone has given you reproach because you kind of have that shame inside and, and you, you, know, you want to say something that equates to, right, thanks for the help. I'm sorry I needed help. I shouldn't have needed help. It's kind of that shame that comes with it. And you, and you see people, you and I, sometimes humorously, sometimes bitterly, like, we, we tend to give with reproach. Right? You can borrow my goggles, but you really should have your own pair from now. Where are yours? Why'd you lose them? Th- those kind of things. However, here in James, we, we learn that's, that's not how God gives. 
This is important for you to understand God, right? He, he gives generously and without reproach. Understand, Christian, your heavenly father wants you to ask for wisdom and he's not going to belittle you for asking. Right? Not ever. Right? This gets to the, the, the heart of the gospel, right? God's unreproachful generosity to you and to me to, to give himself simply because we need him. Not with reproach. Right? Jesus, well, yeah, I guess I'll go to the cross. Be a lot easier if you just be good, right? You know, something like that. There's, there's no reproach. That's not how God works. Now, Kelly Capic, uh, he's an elder in the PCA, and he, he wrote this book, You're, You're Only Human. It's a great book. He said this. He said, I wish, right at this point in James, right? He said, I wish that God, speaking through James, ended right here. Right? We can just end with that. God, you know, he gives without reproach, but, but God doesn't. He goes on to say, he gives this qualifier that I kind of hate, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. Zero doubting? It might as well say ask in German while floating in the air. I guess I can give up hope for wisdom. Right? When you read that, when, you, when we saw that earlier, right? Does, does James qualifier here with, that we ask with no doubt, doubting, right? Does that discourage you? Does that make you think like, all right, so no wisdom's coming my way? James is using this word doubt in a very specific way here. He's not saying that you must never have had spiritual questions, right, or, or struggle to understand, right, why God's putting you through some sort of suffering, whatever it might be. It doesn't mean that, that you never wrestle with certain teachings in the scriptures. And we know this because James paints a picture of the kind of doubt he's talking about. You can see it in verse 6 there. Have a look. He says, the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The wave is up and down and left and right and all over the place in every single direction. The wave is incredibly unstable. In fact, that's what James even says. Unstable, right? In verse 8 later on, he's describing the person who asks while doubting. And he says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The doubt that James is speaking of is, is that of having these, these split loyalties. He wants wisdom from God, yeah, but he'll also take the wisdom of, of Oprah. Right? Or maybe racket it up a little bit. Jordan Peterson. Or, you know, go down a bit to Lady Gaga, right? Or take wherever, you know, wherever you find the next interesting thing from. I mean, listen, in, in, in Matthew 14, Jesus is walking on the water. His disciples are in the boat. And, uh, you know, they're kind of terrified when they first see him. But once they figure out what's going on, Peter asks Jesus, he says, hey, tell me to come to you and I'll walk out on the water, because who doesn't want to walk on water? Uh, and, and Jesus does that, and Peter is looking at Jesus, and he steps out of that boat, and he's walking on water, just mind-blowing reality for him in this moment. And then we read in Matthew 14, 30, but when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. You and I know you can't see the wind. What you can see is, is what the wind's doing to things. What Peter can see is the waves washing back and forth and this, this terrifying trial is, is these erratic waves that he's walking on. He suddenly does not feel safe. That the confidence that Peter had when keeping his eyes fixed upon Jesus is suddenly gone when he starts looking at the trial before him that, that, that is terrifying. You see, this is the, the, the picture of, of the person who James is calling this double-minded, right? Because of one mind, he is looking to God for this wisdom, expecting it, 
but he's got two minds. And with his other mind, he's looking to the problem. He's looking to all these, these concerns, whatever it might be, and, and he doesn't trust it's coming. The Greek term double-minded is this, this word that James seems to have just made up, right? It's one of those smashing words together things, right? Like uh, angry and, and hungry, right? We get the hangry word, and that's a new word. Or, you know, uh, Berkeley years ago took hand, hand sanitizer and mushed them together to make hand sanitizer. Um, so he's making up this word because he's trying to to teach us something, and the word doesn't exist for what he's trying to teach us. He's, he writes, so double-minded is, is literally these two words, two sold, that are squished into this one word, two sold. And, and James creates this word to show us uh, the opposite of what we are intended to be as God's beloved children, namely wholeheartedly loyal to God. As, as King Solomon said in, in 1 Kings 8, 861, when, when calling God's people to absolute loyalty to the Lord, that's what he's doing, right? And here's what he said. Solomon said, let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. It's the kind of verse you kind of wanted to stick on a wall somewhere so you see it all the time. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. Listen, the, the, the reason why, why the prayer for wisdom by the doubting, by the double-minded is going to go unanswered is not some sort of punishment. It, it's that they don't expect it. They wouldn't know it if they saw it. And, and, and deep down, they probably don't want what they're asking for. It, it's kind of like that double-minded prayer, the famous one of Augustine in the 4th century, where he says, Oh, Lord, give me chastity, but do not give it yet. Right? You really want it, Augustine? And so what's wisdom actually look like? How do we, how do we see it? Well, when you are facing a, a trial and, and at a loss as to the wisest thing to do, right? You go and you, you ask God for wisdom. You stop and you pray. You just confess, I don't know what to do here. But, but, but ask boldly, expecting God to give you wisdom. Right? And there's all kinds of trials. It's going to look different. Maybe... Maybe you're facing something medical. I don't know, should we do the surgery route or the medicine route? I don't know. You don't know what to do. Maybe, maybe you know, the place you need wisdom is, is knowing what college to go to. Or, or maybe you, you just, how do you think about God during the most emotionally painful event of your entire life? And, and so you pray, God, I don't know what to do. Please, give me wisdom. And, and we're told in verse 5 that if we ask for wisdom, wisdom will be given to us. Again, what's this wisdom look like when we receive it, right? Because it doesn't say that God's going to speak audibly to us, right? You're not going to hear that, you know, the, the Hollywood voice, right? Alex, you should go to K-State for college, right? Those, those answers aren't, aren't quite that clear. Don't, don't, don't expect that. And, 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 and so how in the world does God actually give us wisdom? Come in a few ways. Maybe a, a wise solution finally shows itself, and, and you're now wondering how you didn't see it before. Well, look, yeah, right? Maybe a passage of Scripture relevant to your situation comes to mind. I hadn't thought of it this way. A writer in, in, in God's providence, somehow the Scripture that you need to read is brought before your eyes. Someone texts it to you, someone mentions it to you, you open it, like, something like that. Maybe a fellow believer with experience in this area, right, uh, has wisdom to share, and they're sharing that wisdom. That's how you actually receive this wisdom. Maybe God frees you to just lean into the suffering for now, to just patiently trust God even in the midst of the pain. Maybe 
The wisdom you need in that moment is to truly believe that God is there and He cares for you. Maybe you find yourself willing to submit to God's Word in areas where you have been rebellious or resistant previously. See, sometimes we are asking for wisdom for situations that are not so clear in Scripture. It's not a matter of knowing what is right and wrong and, and doing it, right? Say, say a young woman wonders whether she should marry a particular young man. He's a Christian. He belongs to a church. He's, he's ready to provide. He's kind. He respects her. He has, she has strong feelings for him. None of her friends have said, you know what? He's nuts. Don't marry him. There's none of those red flag warnings that come from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And still she wonders, should I marry him? And so she prays, humbly confessing that she lacks wisdom. And so she boldly expects God to answer it. How do we know the answer in these situations? And I'll tell you, we're getting close to mysticism here. And as Reformed folks, that's incredibly uncomfortable. Maybe even terrifying for us. We like things just written out clearly for us. I do too. At this point, she's asking God to be Lord of her mind, in a sense, Lord of her feelings, in order to generously give her wisdom. Perhaps soon afterwards, she's confident that it would be wise to marry this young man. All right, it's not as white and black as we want it to be sometimes. Now, that doesn't mean that their marriage is going to be without struggles, right? Oh, it's the will of the Lord, I'm sure of it. Right? In fact, struggles in the marriage might be exactly what God wants for them. That's the wisdom she, she was supposed to go into for her sanctification, for the growth of her faith, for any number of other good things. Now, now the bottom line here, and this is I was telling someone earlier, right, that this is the kind of passage I really want to have a conversation about because it goes off in so many different angles and so many follow-up questions, and, and it's hard to do that from the preaching perspective. But uh, I want you to understand, the bottom line is this, Christian, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it and expect to receive it. That's what James is getting at. And so then the last section of our passage today, again, feels like, like James is just ADHDing to another subject, right? He's, he's not. Uh, everyone knows whether the result is oppression or, or, or providence or just foolish financial planning on, on, on their own part, that various degrees of poverty is a common trial that people face. And, and so this is still in the area, right, of counting all joy when you face trials or when you meet trials of various kinds. And so here James is contrasting the poor and the rich, and, and when, he says the, uh, when he says the lowly poor Christian should boast in his high position, and he says, well, the wealthy should boast in his lowly position, right? Those are two opposite things. Now, you might notice here, if you're one of those really astute people, that the poor man here is called brother, as in a Christian, and the rich man is, is not. And, and this has led some to, to, uh, to think, right, we're, we're contrasting a poor believer with a rich unbeliever. If that's the case, what follows is James just you know, harshly declaring that the rich unbeliever has nothing but judgment coming his way on the last day, which is absolutely true if his life remains that way, right? But it doesn't make sense to say that in a letter that's not going to be read by rich unbelievers. Also, this is unlikely what James is communicating because, well, if you look at what James says of the rich man at the end of verse 10, he says, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Now, the Greek term translated pass away, you and I think of it, and we automatically can, can think in times, uh, final judgment, but it is never used in, in the sense of final judgment of sinners anywhere else in God's word. And so this would be the only instance of that. Plus, we, we know from later in this letter that the church has plenty of rich believers 
Okay, and James is interested in teaching them how do you be rich and follow the Lord, just like he's interested in teaching the poor. How do you be poor and follow the Lord well? And so it is far more likely that James is addressing the rich and the poor who are both believers. Now, with that in mind, James is comparing a poor believer with a rich believer. And as I I mentioned earlier, we, we all agree that poverty is a trial, right? Anyone want to challenge that? Poverty is a trial, but But what we might not realize is that wealth is also a trial. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Because no one says, you know what? My boss, he gave me a $100,000 raise this year, $100,000 raise this year. I don't know what I'm going to do. This is awful. No one says that. Unlike poverty, right, being incredibly wealthy, that's a trial that we're willing to take on. I'll, I'll take that trial right? Uh, Sign me up for that. It sounds like wealth would make life easy. In many ways, it really does. However, with many possessions comes more things that you've got to keep up with and protect and devote your time to and all that stuff. And and, and James, right, is getting there saying, you know what, all that stuff, it fades away, it perishes. And if wealth is going to be the pursuit of your life instead of the Lord, right, he's wanting to call him back and to follow the Lord, make that the pursuit of your life. But if it isn't, right, you're going to perish with it and be left with nothing. But the real trial in wealth is that it tempts the rich to be prideful, to feel superior to those who are poorer, and and in their self-sufficiency to even forget God. What do I need God to do that I can't pay for myself? And, And so James is here correcting the wrong views of both the poor and the rich believer. To the lowly poor believer, he's saying to boast, to rejoice in the reality that in God's eyes, you are exalted, right? Your poorness doesn't keep anything, any of the goodness of God from you. You're his child and spiritually you are rich regardless of how much money you have. And to the wealthy believer, his warning, right? Don't boast, don't rejoice in your money, but boast in your humiliation, by which James means this, that you need God. You, you need your need of Jesus to save you. Boast in that. You see, in the economy of God, the rich and the poor are actually on the same level. Both desperately need the mercy of God. Both need faith in Jesus. In other words, the the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody stands above the other. And and as you read James' words here, I'm always curious, who who do you relate to in this? Right? Or do you consider yourself poor or rich? And it's hard for us, because you probably have considered yourself both at different points in your life or depending upon who's standing next to you. Right? Sometimes we feel poor, sometimes we feel rich. I'll, I'll never forget visiting a Christian family in the mountains of Guatemala, uh, and, and the whole family lived in this one room that was significantly smaller than most of our bedrooms. Uh, they had no shoes. They wore the same clothes every single day. They ate almost the same simple meal over and over and over again. We got to see them washing their clothing. It was in a river. I have never felt more rich than I was walking into their house, and I'm wondering to myself, how in the world do they live like this? What kind of life is this? Then after spending some time with them, their joy in the Lord and their gratitude of the Lord's provisions for them absolutely put me to shame. Just shame me. I found myself wanting what they had, wanting to find joy in, in God, to be satisfied in the things I have, not, not dissatisfied in the fact that my iPad's three generations back or something like that. James's point is that you need Jesus whether you are rich or poor. You need the generosity of our never reproachful God. You need a Savior. 
You need the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom that you don't have. You need that if you're going to count it all joy. Particularly when you're facing trials of various kinds. Now, I, I mentioned last week a, a trial that arose during the week, a small trial, really no big deal except for it was frustrating. Um, after complaining a, a little with Laura, I actually pray. This is the beauty of like when we're in the Word, constantly, not constantly, but when we're in the Word and really studying it, right? It's right there fresh on your mind to do this. And I, I love it when this happens, right? But we actually prayed asking God for wisdom, expecting God to give it. And the end result is it would have been easy to see God actually give wisdom. And I, I, I say that because he, he gave it via a conversation with someone who was applying biblical wisdom to the situation uh, from a perspective that I was missing. And, and the wisest way forward became quite clear. That, that's how God answered the prayer. And again, it'd be easy to be like, no, well, God didn't give me wisdom. It was this person who gave me wisdom. But that's the way God gave the wisdom. That's how God answered my prayer. So, so let me ask you, and, and this is important, Important. Important. That's not a word I usually mispronounce, although there are a lot. Here's the question. When was the last time during a trial, frustrated, discouraged, that you confessed to your Heavenly Father, I do not have wisdom for this? Lord, I need wisdom. Will you give me wisdom? Christian, like James, I, I want you to make this your natural response to trials. That you ask God for wisdom. And really, it's, it's that simple here, isn't it? Furthermore, in this life, some of us are rich, some of us are poor, and that might change over the course of your life. But what doesn't change is that we are all sinners in need of the grace of God. And the good news is that our God is generous. That he gives you the grace that you need. So if you do find your, yourself rich, you don't look down on the poor, right? What James wants you to see here, what God wants you to do here is to recognize you, you have just as much need as they have. And then look to God for that. Let us pray. Uh, Abba Father, there is humility that we need if we are to come to you empty-handed asking for you to provide what we do not have. And that is hard sometimes, Lord, because we don't feel empty-handed. We feel more godly than others. We feel like we've done more than others. We feel like we provide more than others. We feel so many things to try to justify that what we bring in our hands. Oh Lord, humble us. Give us humble hearts. That we might come to you and ask you for wisdom. We ask that you would give us faith to believe that you will give wisdom. To give us single-minded faith. And we can believe that you can, in fact, give us wisdom. And this we pray in, in Christ's name. Amen.